Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm in Glastonbury with the famous Hugh Newman. He is your mystery man. He is your archaeological historian of the most ancient earth mysteries and esoteric sciences. He's a researcher. He's a writer. He's an explorer. He's an international lecturer. Some of you may have seen him on the BBC TV, on Sky Channel 200, and on the Ancient Aliens Series 3, also in Series 4. He is well known for the megalithomania conferences that are attended by people around the world. He is a particularly gifted synthesizer of the ancient mysteries, esoteric sciences, archaeology, and has a real handle on the ancient past. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Hugh Newman to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here. No problem. Good. You're the author of a book called Earth Grids. And before we go into anything about giants and some of the work that you're doing right now, what is an earth grid? Because a lot of people that listen to its rainmaking time, they're real practical boots on the ground, nuts and bolts. I've heard a lot about earth grids. We've had shows on dousing. We've had shows on remote viewing. We've had some gifted psychics on the show and we cover a lot of terrain. So what is an earth grid? Well, there's different aspects to earth grids. It's not just like one grid, one thing. Uh, you mentioned dowsing. That's, that's one aspect of it. Uh, it's, to me, the main aspect is how the ancients laid out megalithic sites and temples and pyramids across the planet. And they did it in a certain way where they were kind of surveying and they were placing things geodetically to like almost like make a map around the world um, of the entire Earth. And they were linked together by these ancient sites. That's one aspect of it. But there's also energetic aspects, uh, which are often overlooked. Um, people talk about the harmony of the spheres of the different planets in our solar system. And there's evidence now that... Um, you know, spherical objects in space have this energetic signature, which is geometric, which is spherical geometric. So we find the different platonic solids, um, so almost like vibrating within the Earth and within different planets. And we find anomalies at certain points on the planet where the vertices or points of these shapes would actually occur. So it's a very visual thing, you know, really to kind of look at. That's why we we, we decided to do the book on it. Uh, we do we've done several videos on it all on the megalithomania.co.uk uh, website, um, so people can see, you know, what we're talking about and what we're, we're thinking about. But generally, uh, we're looking at an ancient geodetic surveying system that I think the ancients were working with, and they marked them with major ancient megalithic sites. When you were first talking about shapes outside of the Earth, some people may think that's astrological. Is that what you're referring to, or are you referring to something else? Oh, no, not astrological, no. But they, they could be connected in, a, in an esoteric way. Um, but, you know, we look at uh, the sun, for instance. We have certain types of solar flare activity at certain latitudes around around the um, the solar orb. And so where, where these points of activity happen are where a... Um, tetrahedron points would be if you placed it within that sphere the sun you know the points of that that kind of um you know triangle that pyramid the points where they stick out and touch the edge is where you get activity on that planet so it's really about geometry and about cymatics or sound and how different sounds actually create geometry or vice versa and we find that all the different planets have certain frequencies and sounds constantly we can't hear them with our, with our ears you know that they're, they're beyond our range of hearing 
but if we could it'd be extremely noisy and it'd be like a symphony of just incredible noise which actually had some kind of order to it which we're just starting to get our heads around now what is it about the tetrahedron that's so relevant well a lot, a lot of people in uh well, spiritual circles they, they talk about the star tetrahedron or the merkabah and there's different names given to it um where it's like two interlocked tetrahedrons um they're like, they're like pyramids but with three sides basically each tetrahedron is uh but if you look at it, if you place a tetrahedron within a sphere, so the top point is touching the North Pole, then where the points touch around the edge are at 19.47 degrees below the equator or below the centre. Um, and so this is a very relevant because we find extreme volcanic activity on various planets and even a, a solar flow activity on the sun at that latitude. Now, is that a coincidence or is it the fact that you know, we find that there's meaning to that. And I, I think there is. I think when you look at cymatics, which is how sound affects matter, uh, you can really, really sort of see aspects of that, not only in planets, but in other, you know, experiments that have been done by people like Hans Jenny and other researchers more recently. In one of your videos, you talked about the equator and Giza being a prime meridian that Greenwich is not really the prime meridian. I thought that was fascinating. I wonder if you could just talk a couple of minutes yeah, about I mean, that. That was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's in, it's in the Earthquids book as well. And it's just the concept that in ancient times, it's now believed by a lot of researchers, not just me, um, that the prime meridian used to go through Giza. You know, that was, the Great Pyramid was where they marked it, which goes from the north to the south pole through Giza. And it was never in Greenwich. That was just an arbitrary, that was more political choice, you know, you know, thousands of years later. Because when you start looking at the placement of ancient sites around the planet, they all relate to the Giza Meridian. Everything fits into place, which is you know, absolutely fascinating in itself. But, you know, when you try and, you know, survey or look where ancient sites are from the Greenwich Meridian, there's no meaning to it. There's, there's no pattern. There's no number systems that pop up or anything like that. When you, when you have the prime meridian through Giza, everything slots into place. There's harmonic number systems linking them. The distances, the degrees apart, the amount of miles or, um, you know, uh, and, and diff different geometries start forming between them as well, even. And so you, you can't help but notice that there's something going on there. So, you know, it's, it's just it's just a general idea that's been you know going around for a while. It's been noted by several different authors, but... When you're looking at Earth grids, that's one of the most important things you need to do is find the prime meridian that the ancient peoples were using and see if there's any connections. And that is the one alignment that, that matches all the other sites around the world. Wow, that's remarkable. That should be a modern-day discovery, don't you think? Well, I mean, it'd be quite fun if they changed it, to be honest with you, because um, the other thing about... <clears throat> That particular spot on Earth, where the, where the um, great you know, the Giza Plateau basically is, that there's more landmass in all directions from that spot than there is from anywhere else in, on the planet. So it's almost like the gravitational landmass sort of plug point of the planet, where the, the most landmass is formed around that particular area. So they may have chosen it partly for that reason. There's what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, where your mind has you focused. And then there's what business you're in. And sometimes people confuse what they do day to day with what business they're really in. What business would you say you're in? When the railroads were asked what business they were in in the United States, they said, we're in the railroad business. But because they saw themselves that way, they weren't open to 
transportation. So when other forms of transportation became available, they weren't prepared. I'm just wondering, you know, because you sound like you're a remarkable synthesizer. And I was wondering, how do you perceive who you are and what you do? Uh, Well, I just want to kind of find um, the truth about our ancient past. Really, That's really what it all boils down to. Uh, I think one of the things we're lacking in society um, and and the whole world, really, we're cut off from our ancestors. That's that's one one big problem, you know, and it's, it's actually a spiritual problem we're having. And I think there's a lot needs to be addressed there because when you start looking into the ancient mysteries, especially when you look at these giant skeletons, you find, you look at uh, the Mayan systems, you look at the Egyptian systems, things like that, there's not much left to go on, especially Britain. It's all gone. It all got destroyed by the Romans. So we were cut off from our own physical blood relatives going back thousands of years. And it's been deliberate suppression and closing down of these old these old pagan, if you like, kind of traditions. I think I think my role is, or, or certainly my passion is, to actually kind of reconnect to that. And one of the main things you got to do there is study. You got you got you got to read. You got to study, and you have to visit these sites with a very open mind, and not just um, not just taking what you physically see with your eyes, but actually taking what you know the sense of the place what your ancestors were doing there uh, the energies of the place why they chose that particular spot why what is how does it relate to other sites i'm just trying to get into the mindset really of our ancestors because i think um if you're um if you don't know your who you were you don't know who you are now we know that the history books really don't tell us the history of who we are and we're not going to get there from the history books so do you think that you're part of maybe a team of people Maybe not an exact precise team, but a group of people around the world that are going to uncover who we were. How did we start out? How did we really get here? Do you think you're going to link it all together or do you feel like you know, but you can't say yet? Uh, I mean, there's a network of researchers and right. authors. There's a whole, there's a lot of us, and we all kind of support each other, help each other out, share research, and this, that, and the other. So it's all, it's all a good, good energy with it, really. Um, and yeah, we're all on the same path, really. We're all looking for the truth about our past, and and there's so many amazing sites and temples and and experiences you have with these places and legends and folklore and. The best bits are the ones that are deliberately covered up and suppressed. It makes you want to look even more. You mean like the ones that Michael Cremo, we had him on a few years ago, and I was in shock then just with what was covered up. I was stupefied. Yeah, yeah, like Michael Cremer, he's um, he's a legendary figure in this whole. Well, he's, he's actually spoken in Glastonbury at, at our Megalithomania conference a couple of years ago. Uh, he's great, and uh, when I, I first read his books, that was one of the breakthroughs. It's really hard to take on. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's just yeah. mind blowing how much is being covered up. Yeah, because his stuff goes back millions of years, so it's very strange. You know, I'm more into the megalithic cultures, which go back. You know, nowadays, they stretch back to like twelve thousand uh, BC. Sites like a Beckley Tepe, which is relatively recently been uncovered, but other sites are now being you know, there's questions about the dating of other sites around the world, and uh, even at Stonehenge, the wooden post holes there, and some of the um, newer discoveries they're making go back 10,000 years. So, that so there's it's, we're pushing the dates back, which is very interesting in itself. But to me, I'm just fascinated as to why it's being covered up, why is stuff not of why don't why isn't this stuff like academically you know, available to everyone? There's an issue, really. I mean, there's alternative research like myself, 
we don't we're not um scientists we're not archaeologists we're just you know i'm I'm like an antiquarian that's what i call that's what i am really describe that to the audience it's an old english antiques term. right not antiques no no an antiquarian <laughs> is, is uh, someone who, who loves researching and discovering ancient things you know that's all it is really uh and it's and it's a non-professional um passion for these ancient mysteries uh and i think it's a term i really like because you, you don't have any um blinkers on there's no agenda there's no paradigm you have to stick to you can just do whatever you like and you can have a completely open mind and so to me all all of us alternative researchers are antiquarians and i love that term it's uh, my colleague friend stuart mason formed the antiquarian society a few years ago to you know create this kind of new movement um of that so you know i think an antiquarian is a good way of putting it i think it should be used more because uh it's great archaeologists and anthropologists are great i respect all the hard work they do don't get me wrong they have to report to their universities is the difficulty yeah i mean and they have it, to answer for grants right yeah it's the grants it's the peer review it's the paradigm it's it's the closed-mindedness which really bugs me and other people so we, we think i don't want to get a qualification i don't want to have to you know, be peer reviewed and questioned and then told my career's over if I say the wrong thing. You know, I just, I'm not interested. I just want to do what I love. And I think that's what um, a lot of researchers have realized. They can just do it for the fun of it and just write books, you know, publish websites, do this, that and the other. So I think it's very important to have that kind of antiquarian feel about it, um, to go in there with a passion, you know, and like explore. Because often, you know, a lot of the most major discoveries haven't been made by archaeologists or anthropologists. They've been made by, you know, just people who are interested, you know, antiquarians. So, so to me, that really rings bells with me. And some, you know, some of the breakthroughs in archaeoastronomy, geomancy and geodesy have not been through universities. They've been through independent researchers. And this has been like this for, you know, several hundred years now. Can you clarify terms too about what is geomancy? Geomancy is, uh, it really is dowsing in, in one sense you know dowsing is geomancy it's um just it's just basically study of divining the earth um that's kind of what it means um and you connect with the different realms here the different elemental realms um you harmonize the earth energies and the underground water and basically it's about finding harmony within the landscape, within the house, within oneself. It's really kind of a very, very ancient tradition, which I think all the ancient megalith builders were working with. And we know it was very ancient because of Feng Shui, because of the, the traditions in, in the ancient Far East. Do you douse? Yes, I do dowsing, yeah. Do you consider yourself pretty good at it? Uh, I'm a reasonable dowser. <laughs> I think it's the best way of putting it. Uh, I do douse whenever I travel, I go to sites, but I don't rely on it as... The, to get all the answers i just do it as one aspect of my research who were you before all this tell us a little bit about you who were you before megalithomania who were you before you wrote books and before this interest and i'd like to know what spawned your interest i've been interested in this kind of stuff for a very long time actually um fairly early age one of the things that got me really into it was it might sound bizarre to some people but it was was the crop circles uh, when I was in my early 20s, I started visiting crop circles just because they're just a weird thing, kind of you know, strange thing to go and check out. And I was absolutely stunned by them, utterly stunned, um, because they're just so intricate, so beautiful, so wonderful to enjoy. And the geometries were so special. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of 
fakes, hoaxes, there's teams making them to sort of dupe people. Um, but there's simply too many and they go, they've been around for too long. There's some of them, there's reports of them going back hundreds of years now. Uh, I don't think the teams of hoaxes doing them in the 1600s or anything like that. They're pretty elaborate and quite big. Yes, exactly. It takes exactly. time to do them. Yeah, I mean, and I believe many of the most major ones are, are you know, made by people nowadays. And I, I admit that and I'm, 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 I don't really mind. I'm like, whatever, it is what it is. You just have to kind of explore them because... If they if people are making all of them, well, they have my highest respect. But I don't think they are making all of them. I think they're making some of them, and they're they're just copying what came before uh, from a mysterious place. So please don't ask me who who where they come from. I don't know. Oh, no, no, I don't think any of us could answer that. No, you know, it's the cool. question is: is it by us or by something else? And who would know? Yeah, mm-hmm. but the fact is, they go back so far into the distant past. Uh, I've found records of them in the 1600s in East Anglia. Even There's even sort of hints of them in the Old Testament, which is very strange. Um, and there's reports in the 1700s, 1800s, which have been noted. And there's, there's, a, there's a quite a deep history of them. And so that, that kind of drew me into the ancient landscape around Wiltshire and Somerset and Glastonbury and other places like that. And that's what opened me up to this um, idea that, you know, they, they were somehow connected with the megalithic sites. It's almost like the megalithic sites were kind of involved in the creation of these crop circles. Perhaps even crop circles appeared thousands of years ago because we know they were growing, you know, wheat and things like that a very long time ago now. Um, and, and they built megalithic sites where crop circles formed. So there's there's theories like that being going around. Um, but it's the earth energies as well, which really fascinated me. Uh, that's why I got into dowsing because I found that earth energy currents were moving around within these crop circles, and they joined up with stone circles, which is very strange. And this was this is kind of ridiculed pretty much. For some reason, it's perceived, unless one is in it and really understands it, it's perceived as airy-fairy, it's perceived as not credible, it's perceived as unreal and fantasy realm and metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, but there's something to it for sure. No, no, it's, it's been around for too long to dismiss. Um, and also, there's been some very good research uh, which has been scientifically uh, peer-reviewed and published in academic journals um, uh, which is basically put it all on the table that in fact these sites these megalithic sites and these crop circles do have energetic principles that cannot now be denied because they've been published now properly in scientific journals one of the best researchers on this is unfortunately died a few years ago was john burke he was part of the um Burke, Levin, Good and Talbot research team from Boston. And they scientifically decided to analyse crop circles. And they had labs and they were testing all the different things and so on and so forth. And and they decided, uh, John Burke himself decided to test the megalithic sites as well for the same energy signatures. And he was getting incredible results all around the world. And so he realised that, you know, the dowsers, the geomancers, they, they were right all along. And he kind of, he, he re- and, and he was very, you know, diligent, you know, scientifically spend a whole day just testing one stone, see what the results would be at different times of day. Um, and his results are startling and they can be viewed um, in, his, in his brilliant book, which I think is out of print, but you might be able to get a copy, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty by John Burke and Catch Halberg. Um, I do cover some of his research in some of my videos on the website, uh, which people can download. Um, so there's a lot to be said for that now. He kind of broke, he broke the kind of, he really broke the boundary of it and kind of enabled, you know, dowsers and geomancers to be taken fairly seriously now. And, and I respect that. And, and, and uh, I'm very open to that. And I think, it's, you know, you must look at the invisible aspects of these sites as well as the visible. 
We know also that the dowsers are taken seriously by the mining companies. Yes. Yuri Geller is the best example. He was dowsing to help them find oil, and he was successful most times, and gold mining uh, and uh, everything else. So, But they keep that secret. Even um, you have ele electricians who are like, uh, when they have to try and find the cables, the old cables in the roads, they've all got dowsing rods, all of them. And they kind of go... Out here? Yeah. I mean, when, when, I, when we were filming the... Um, Search for the Lost Giants TV show in America. <laughs> that this guy came up who had to dig some stuff up out of the ground. He had a dowsing rod so he could find what he was looking for. Oh, that's great. And I was like, wow, this is really funny. And like, and yet people try and dismiss it. And people are using it for practical things quietly. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to be said for it. And I think it needs to be, um, that needs to be addressed. And not, you know, don't worry about it being scientific. Just if people get results. That's it. It's all that's needed. Yeah. In California, like in other parts of the world, there's been a serious reported drought. I'm going to say reported drought. And one of the things that really drives me crazy is that any kind of water that you want to get, you can get it. Just douse for it yeah. and work with somebody who gets results more than not. And yet the news in California is that they're going to have to ration all this water and everything. And there's plenty of water in California. And it's like this in many parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's not part of the paradigm now. It's... Um... We've sort of gone into this sort of um, very scientific world, which is great. You know, we've got amazing technologies and health and everything like that. Don't get me wrong, but there's an invisible world which we need to address. And like uh, to just to ignore it and pretend it's not there because you can't see it with your eyes, to me is is almost ridiculous. Uh, it's almost like become a joke. You know that you know people are so you know, adamant that it's not there because I can't see it with my eyes. I'm like, oh God, really? Can you see electricity? Can you see the wind? It's there. You can't deny it's there. It's real. And so it's just the same, you know, it's, it's, it's similar things we have to deal with as researchers. We, you know, we get attacked constantly when we kind of, you know, challenging the status quo. Give us an example. Uh, well, question, questioning the dating of sites, um, even though it's been carbon dated uh, a very long time ago. Uh, this, these giant skeletons we're looking at in North America, there's a lot of ridicule about that. Um, uh, the list goes on, really. I mean, and um, and just you know, quite, you know, even people talk about the A word, Atlantis, that like there was an ancient civilization going back ten thousand years. People laughed about it. There's no way there was any technology or anything ten thousand years ago. Blah, 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 you know, and and then they find Gobekli Tepe, which is twelve thousand years old. <laughs> Hello, and that's an extremely sophisticated site. Um, and and it's vast. It's multiple stone circles on the hills in southeast Turkey, and yet, and yet they can't deny that it's, it's physically there. They can see it with their eyes. So, so yeah. So there's a lot. Um, there's a lot still under the ground. We're going to find. Do you think that carbon dating is the most advanced form of dating any type of monument or site? Well, yeah. As long as you've got the right, um, you find the right sort of uh, organic matter. Then yes, yeah, it's, it's a good. It's, especially nowadays, it gets more and more accurate. So yeah, I think that's a good one. But I think you know, different. There's different ones. There's sonoluminescence. There's another version of that developed by uh, various people, including Robert Temple. When you can remove, remove one bit of stone from another, you can see how much when it last saw light. You can kind of work out within a few hundred years. Um, so that's that's some things they've been doing at the in the Giza Plateau and getting some interesting results just a few hundred years earlier than normal. Um, they're, they're the best ones really. but also like looking at the astronomy and the archaeoastronomy because if you can decode a site and you know it's based on astronomy and it's built according to these principles and used as a calendar system you, because of procession of the equinoxes and the obliquity of the ecliptic and things like that you can see the changes that have happened 
um, and you can then pull back the sky to, to align with it and get a dating that way, which has been done a lot, but it's usually discredited because it's not um, physical. Talk to us about the best case scenario that your work could flourish in. Give us the best case. If you could blink your eye and have X produced, what's needed in the field to take the revelation of who we are and the ancient and new knowledge and synthesize it and get it to the public? What's needed? I think we need to kind of just um, uh, rethink how we use these sites now. Don't necessarily have them as tourist attractions. We charge money to get in. I think that's one of the, the most frustrating thing. You get a random bunch of people who are trying to control and make money out of the sites uh, that really annoys me because it's like that you know it might be my ancestors who built it. it might not be yours it might be mine and you're you're not letting me go in there you know the frustration of that is so intense when you start traveling and, and looking around the world and i think we need to remove all payment to visit sites and there needs to be um they need to be looked after by people with different skills um, spiritual skills, um, engineering skills, and actually potentially, you know, get the sites back to how they should be, um, and get them back functioning again. So there could be something we're missing because they're not set up properly anymore. They're not functioning. They're not. They're not doing what they're supposed to. There could be something we don't even know about. There could be some kind of grid, you know, energy thing. We just haven't got a clue. So um, I mean, there are there is a lot of evidence to suggest they were built to actually like um, stabilize the planet to actually like almost like acupuncture points around the planet and so gravitational plug points like the pyramids actually hold things in place and absorb uh, seismic energy to reduce earthquakes and things like that. Um, so there, there, there is a lot to be said for that and I think uh, we've lost contact with that and I think if we're not careful we're going to you know go down a very dark road where we slowly destroy and, and abuse these sites and it could actually affect our future and our generations you know our future generations so i think there's something i'm not quite sure how to approach that but there's something i've said to be about just getting sites back to their original um style and way they were built i'm under the impression now stonehenge has some type of structure around it and you can't come near the actual stones that yeah. something was put around them so the public doesn't touch them or what is it that was that, no, that was done? No, no, they've just got a fence around it, basically. Um, that's all. And you, you can, I mean, if you go there on the summer or winter solstice or the equinoxes, you can go in the stones and have a party. Um, so that's, <laughs> okay, that's, good. That's why I go every time possible because it's the best time to go because there's hundreds of people having a great time, thousands, in fact. There's actually 7,000 people there for the winter solstice. I was expecting there to be like a hundred people there, but it was it was warmer than it is today, and it's just um, fantastic. You get forty thousand people go there for the summer solstice, and it's great fun. The druids are there doing their thing. I love all the druids. Um, they're holding, they're, they're maintaining the traditions, which I think is also very important. And they're holding on to the traditions, whether it's exactly what the ancients were doing. Who cares? They're, they're doing their best, and I think they're doing a brilliant job at it. Um, and also the Druids, Stonehenge, uh, Rollo and King Arthur and all these other people, fantastic people, they, they main, they're the ones who challenge English heritage and enable access at the summer solstice and winter solstice and equinoxes and maintain a level of open uh, access for people. And if it wasn't for them... No one would be going there unless they were paying thirty pounds to get in or whatever. So, great. Uh, so yeah, so it's good. Um, you know, so there's other roles. You know, of 
you know, holding on to the ancient traditions, also holding on to the ancient common law, the ancient um, laws of the land, if you like, and relating to these sites. When you travel and you're going into a site, do you work with any dowsers or you just do the dowsing as part of what you do just to check in? Yeah, yeah, a bit of both really. If there's dowsers with us, great. Because often we do tours. We do like organized trips, expeditions. We have a bunch of people coming from different parts of the world and just, just want to experience the sites. But often we get a bunch of dowsers coming or, or some experts in geology or archaeologists oh, or, or whatever. So we, wow. can, so we actually get a different take. So we actually end up learning and it becomes a synergistic kind of thing. We do these... Uh, we started to do more and more tours to enable that, really, to, to become like a synergistic learning experience. Um, it's more of a kind of, um, you know, we, we discover things on these tours. You know, we find new sites or we find, you know, artifacts or we quest looking for certain things. So it's, we, we have a lot of fun. And um, But, yeah, I think um, generally if I'm on my own, I'll just take my kit. You know, I've got various kit I have in my backpack. Um, dowsing rods I have a, a magnetometer to check any readings see if there's any fluctuations in the magnetism or the ele- electromagnetism um, also have um, some very good apps you get now on your iPhone and iPads which you can read which pick up different aspects of magnetism plus you can uh, I've got a theodolite built into my iPad so you can actually like take very accurate readings of the site, GPS readings, measurements, and alignments of certain planets and stars and sunrises. So you can do a lot now just with a small backpack full of kit. And I've now got a quadcopter with a camera on it so you can get aerial shots and la-di-da. So the list goes on. There's um, like a nerd, explore a nerd pack. <laughs> <laughs> now you're producing a book on giants, correct? Yes. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm working with um, a friend of mine, Jim Vieira, who's based in Massachusetts. We've been researching the Giants for a very long time. Uh, I've been looking into it since for about six or seven years now. It's all in North America as well. That's that's the weird thing. Uh, I first came across... You know, my head is bigger than the Brits. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I don't know how they let me in the country, actually. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you're too you tall. Know. You're too tall. <laughs> But it's, initially, it's the work of Ross Hamilton, who's the, the who we call the godfather of giantology. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's based in Cincinnati, Ohio, where you get the most of them are found. But they're all found in the mounds. These skeletons, they're all reported in newspaper reports, scientific journals, Smithsonian ethnology reports, uh, town histories, etc. Private letters between doctors and things like that for over a hundred years, between the early eighteen hundreds to the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, and tens of thousands of these were found. There's, we've got over 1,500 reports. Um, and the problem is, uh, most of the skeletons of skulls have now disappeared. They've been taken over. They're always, the Smithsonian founded itself, and then they got involved. And, you know, to cut a long story short, they disappeared, most of the skeletons. There's big questions of why they did it. Um, but there's, we have literally hundreds of reports of the Smithsonian collecting the bones. Um and then when they were contacted about those particular bones, oh no, don't know what you're talking about. They're boneless. Yeah, they're boneless, <laughs> skullless, and um, and so and so that that became a problem, and uh, and it was an ongoing kind of cover up. And you know, people say, oh, it's not a cover up. They were just didn't know what they were doing. I'm like, no, you can see the who was doing what and when. And so yeah, we, we don't. It's kind of like the Library of Congress in the United States also has some ancient maps they don't want the public to know about that all of a sudden disappeared there too. Yeah, and it's a, it's quite a long story. This, and if anyone's you know to get the the full the picture, a rough picture of this, uh, there was a TV show we just did. It's just just finished on history. It's probably being repeated 
Um, the History Channel. Yeah, yeah. Search for the Lost Giants, it's called. And uh, Jim and Bill Vieira brothers are starring in it, and me and Ross are in it as well. Okay. Um, and that's the, and we almost finished our book. We're going to finish our book off over the next couple of months, called Giants on Record. Uh, we're just basically documenting uh, probably about 400 reports and analysing as many of them as we can. Because um, it's very strange, some of them. Some of them, some of the skulls that are found are like inch-thick skulls. They're, some of the skulls are 36-inch circumference, which is very, if you imagine a 36-inch waist, not far from mine. Um, this, that is the size of a skull. You know, we, we look at... It's twice as big as your skull. It's it's insane. And also, some of the skeletons go up to like you know, the, the majority of them between seven and ten feet tall. Some have two rows of teeth. Some have uh, the teeth molars at the back here, around the front as well. So it's very strange dental anomalies. Um, and um, some even have horns, which is even weirder. So there was like, and some of them are dated to eight thousand years ago, nine thousand years ago in, in the in the different parts of America, was most of them were found dated to about 1000 BC, the Adena period, and then the later Hopewell period. Are there certain researchers that actually have access to these bones? Uh, well, uh, let me That get, haven't been taken and seized and hidden? Let me get back to that. So we, yeah. have, so we have the Smithsonian, who disappeared 99% of the bones, and then, and then some of them were on display up into the 1900s and, and, and um, 20th, you know, twentieth century, twenty first century. It's until nineteen ninety, there was some on display. They were just literally in museums, uh, private collections. They were going around a circus or you know um, fairground attractions, things like this. Uh, and they were photographed. We have photos. We have a lot of photos. We have newspaper pictures of them. Um, but in nineteen ninety, the NAGPRA Act came in, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And this was um, put together by um, different um, Native American, um, you know, councils and the government. And so the problem with that is, is that, you know, which is, I respect, you know, we totally respect that they had to do that. And it's a very good thing. There was lots of desecration of graves going on and, you know, it wasn't um, fully respected. So, but they took all the giant bones and the giant skeletons too, which is really annoying uh, and frustrating for us as researchers because all, all the evidence is gone now. I mean, and it's literally illegal to even own or have any of these bones or skulls or even print them in books or certainly not have them on a Who TV. Who made that part. illegal? Uh, it, it was the NAGPRA Act. Um, is that here in, in America? No, just in America, America, North America, um, only North America. But that's where all the giant skeletons were. And so that's the problem. So we're battling with that. So it's like, you're kind of like, there's a law stopping us from even going anywhere with it. So, so. But what about on Native American land? If you got permission to go onto Native American yeah, land and you were invited, I mean, the, the good thing is what what, what has happened is uh, I mean, we, I've seen a giant skeleton in, in a North America. I've seen one in the Mutter Museum in Pen in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's there, so it's there, but it's not a Native American. It's this seven foot seven uh, seven foot six skeleton. Probably got acromegaly, which is a pituitary gland, a pituitary gland dysfunction where you, you have growth spurts and you get very tall. But it was found in Kentucky, which is right near the North Kentucky, which is right near the Ohio kind of valley um, center of where the giants were discovered. So, but basically what, what happened was the col colonials came over uh, and they dug up all these mounds. There's, there's 100,000 recorded mounds and earthworks you know, in North America, mainly along the Mississippi, various 
either side of that, going from pretty much New York State all the way over to California in some cases. Um, but the Native Americans never dug the mounds up. Uh, they respected this earlier culture or their ancestors, um, and they never dug the mounds up. They respected them as grave sites. As soon as the white man turned up, boom, goes digging them all up, find, trying to get, find treasure. But all they found was thousands of giant skeletons, double rows of teeth. <laughs> and so, and but and they're all reported. They're all sent to the Smithsonian. They were put in newspapers. They were measured, this, that, and the other. So all the data is there. It's just the bones aren't, and that's what's um, and that's what that's what any skeptical just say. Where are the bones? And so we're in this position where we're like frustrated because we can't find the bones. So what we've decided to do is we've decided just to present the evidence we've got and let people decide for themselves. And the TV program really helped because it enabled people to contact us and actually tell us about this old skull that their grandmother's got in the basement. You know, so so we're getting a few leads on various skeletons now, and and if and or hopefully when we get a second series, we'll uh, actually be able to, you know, move forward properly with this. But I mean, to to me, the main thing is I'm, I don't care. You know, I'm not too bothered if there's bones or not. I really don't care. It's like the crop circles. I don't care who makes them. You know, what I care about is that. What we, are they? Why are they there? You know, who and what does it they? mean? Why is this not part of our history books? Why is it covered up? Why is it being covered up even now? I want to know. I want to question this because if there was a giant race around for thousands of years in North America and potentially around the world, why don't I know about that? You know, it's my right as a human being to know about my history and to have that covered up by institutions especially institutions that are official institutions is not cool and it needs to be addressed in itself, you know, regardless if there's bones or not. I mean, obviously, you know, that giants existed. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So what does that mean to you? And how do we translate as listeners? Yeah, I what mean, could that mean to us? I mean, to me, it's not even that big a deal, really, you know, to, you know, because who cares, you know, but you're a giant among giants. Yeah, and then I'm, who? I'm, I'm a giantologist. <laughs> But, no, the thing is, it's like they were dinosaurs. Does everyone freak out about them, try and cover them up? No. You know, apart from, you know, the fundamentalist Christians. But, the, you know, they were there. They were huge. What's the big deal? Why? Who cares if they were giant humans? Why? Why did you, Maybe why, it's a religious thing. Yeah, but why cover it up? You know, it's like, because yeah. they're giants in the Bible, for God's sake. You know, oh, for God's sake, I not say that really. <laughs> but there's, but you know what I mean? So there's actually giants talked about, matter of fact, in the Bible, hundreds of accounts, you know, we, and we've, we're just like, this is too much. There's too many accounts um, to kind of deal with. So um, to me, it's not that, you know, it's not a huge deal. It's just like something we're interested in and we want to get to the bottom of and, and you know, expose the truth about Sounds it. Sounds like you're on your way. Yeah, we, we're just, in, you know, we're just doing it. I mean, we don't we don't really have an agenda. We've got no, you know, no, you know we're just doing it as individuals. It's our passion. It's an interesting subject. We're not like uh, having got a political or religious agenda or anything like that. We, we, we're no interest in that. We just want to present the evidence and get people talking about it. How did the traditional television and radio stations receive you? Well, I tell you what, the History Channel were very good, actually. I mean, there's a lot of controversy in the History Channel because they now they did Ancient Aliens and they've done certain programs which are more speculative, a bit like the Giants one. And um, and actually, they were very supportive and they were very cool. And the production company, Left Right Productions, based in New York, were fantastic very professional, very interested in the subject. And um, and we, we, we treated it really as a quest, you know, knowing we may not find any physical bone evidence, but we didn't care. We thought, we'll just, 
it will give us a chance to present all the evidence and that people can do their own research, make up their own minds, check out their grandma's basement and, you know, see, see what, um, see what, you know, see if people uncover anything. So, um, I mean, the History Channel, I think, is uh, it's very imp- Ancient Aliens has, has opened the door, I've got to be honest with you. That TV show, although it's ridiculed and joked about, actually, you know, some of it is, is actually very interesting information. You know, it's very powerful information. And they kind of, it enables extremely interesting esoteric information that's never been allowed on TV before to now be on TV to the general public. And... You know, and they sort of hold it under this ancient aliens guys, even though they know full well it wasn't all ancient aliens making these sites and these giants. And, you know, you know what I mean. So, uh, I find that I find that fascinating that the door's been sort of wedged open for alternative researchers to have their say. I'd like to see more funds coming into research, ancient research. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah, we would as well. Obviously, uh, we'd have liked that a lot. Um, but we, we don't really. I'm not funded in any way. Um, I know you get some research in America that are funded, but I kind of avoid it really. I'm not really, I don't care. I mean, I just, I'm a, tra- I'm a traveler naturally. I want to travel the world. So I will do whatever I can to make that happen. It's kind of why we organize conferences and tours that drum up interest. And then people come on the tours and hopefully we get enough people where we can go on the tour and it's taken care of. It's paid for. So we, we get a chance to visit and share the information with these, these, um, these other people um and yeah and it's, it's just a it's just a flow of information and sharing i think is the most important and um and yeah and if people want to fund me that's great please get in touch <laughs> <laughs> i have no problem and with how that. do they get in touch <laughs> they can just get in touch with me through megalithomania.co.uk spell it for us will you m-e-g-a-l-i-t-h-o mania m-a-n-i-a dot c-o dot u-k and they can contact me info at megalithomania.co.uk and also through um, just hughnewman.co.uk, H-U-G-H-N-E-W-M-A-N.co.uk. It's just at the, the part of the Megalithomania site. Um, yeah, any, any, anywhere they like, really. I'm, I'm all over Facebook and, you know, the social networks and things like that, so I'm easy to find. And we've got a very extensive YouTube channel where we've got 250 videos up there, free to watch of lectures, uh, expeditions, of uh, obscure things, obscure places like Tonga and Costa Rica that I've travelled to and filmed and interviewed people. So, And uh, there's a bit of stuff on Giants there as well, so people can subscribe to that and keep updated. We, we put something up every week. We've got new stuff coming up. I'm curious to know, what is one of your favourite places? I get asked this a lot. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've got to be honest with you, I love everywhere. Every site I've been to is equally fascinating. I'm like a, a child in the toy shop every time I go to a megalithic site. I'm just the same. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, so it's, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there are some classics, you know. I'm, I'm, I've become more and more fond of Stonehenge. I kind of avoided Stonehenge for a long time. It was the famous site. It was the big site everyone went to. It was the tourist attraction. But I've become more and more fond of it the more I've been there on the equinox and the solstices. And you actually get a chance to really celebrate there. And it's a whole different vibe. It's a whole different thing. You're not controlled. You don't have a lot of time and a tour guide telling you what's what. You're partying. You're having fun. And that that really has opened it up to me in a different way. And you can explore the landscape around it, which goes on for miles. So, yeah. So, yeah, Stonehenge is obviously uh, one of the ones. Um, there's a couple of really obscure sites. There's a place in Costa Rica called Finca 6. 
down in a town called Parmesur. It's where some of the Costa Rica megalithic spheres are actually in situ, still buried in the ground. There's something magical about that site because it's just one of the most abstract, unusual megalithic sites on the planet where there's just hundreds of perfect megalithic spheres were produced, some nine feet wide, and just put into all these strange positions and geometrical patterns across the whole south part of the country. Um, I'm like, this is just too weird. And there's no other megalithic construction, just these, just spheres, just perfect wow. spheres. I'm like, why is that there? And it's the, it's one of the most baffling, unusual places I've been to, I think. Um, Peru is another one. I'm obsessed by Peru and Bolivia, Tiwanaku, Pumapunku, um, Saxe Woman, you know, all the place all down there. We go there every year with Brian Forrester. We do tours there. Um, we do one there in June with Andrew Collins, who's a fantastic researcher. Uh, and another, we're doing two, we're doing two this year. <laughs> we can't help ourselves. Any opportunity to go back there, I take it. So we're going you back. You probably had a life in Peru. <laughs> I must have done. I must have done. <laughs> you probably built the place. Yeah, well, who knows? Yeah, who knows? You know. Maybe you were the. You were. You, <laughs> maybe you were the general contractor. Well, yeah, I was like uh, the foreman of the construction site. <laughs> who knows? You've been to Egypt. Yeah. What do you think? What do I think of it? Come on, God, give us your. Like, give you us know. your. I know. Give us the essence of your take on Egypt. Well, it's the extremely old kingdom Egypt, which fascinates me. Um, I love um, the Giza Plateau is particularly compelling. And uh, the Assyrian, uh, Abydos, uh, the, them two sites do it for me. They're, they're, they're just utterly mind-blowing uh, because they're, they're a much, much earlier culture, in my opinion. Um, much earlier, sort of Sphinx era, 10,000 BC kind of thing. And the polygonal, megalithic sophisticated um, construction there is it matches almost precisely that in Peru and uh, Bolivia. And so I, I, I they're the same architects in my opinion. And I'm wondering why that isn't common knowledge and why that's dismissed by um, academics because it's, it's remarkable. You don't build like that and then build like that somewhere else in the world at a different time for the, for no reason. There's a, there's a design spec behind it, which goes back to the very distant past, but a very sophisticated bunch of ge geomancer, wizard priests, whatever you want to call them, who kind of knew what they were doing. And this is actually where the, um, the Freemasons kind of um, came from, is uh, finding out all this high knowledge of stone construction in Egypt and other places. So there's probably a lot of good we could find out about Freemasonry, yes? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean I've got some friends who are high-level Freemasons, and they're just... They're just great. They're just like, they've told me a lot about it. You know, they're not supposed to probably, but. Um, <laughs> Don't mention their name. No, no. Keep but, it a secret. But they have, um, it's not a big deal now, I don't think. I don't think it's that big a deal. I don't think there's a big, I don't think there's a big conspiracy. I mean, I think there's certain Freemasons who are probably dodgy, like there is in other aspects. And they're the ones that get remembered because they're Freemasons, but. The Freemasons I've met aren't, aren't bad people. They're great. They're lovely guys, you know. So I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not into Freemasons. I wouldn't know. But I think uh, they hold on to traditions, which I respect. You know, like the Druids do. I think there's there's an art to holding on to traditions, and at least they've done that. You know, I think you know they have to be sort of credited for that. Whatever other stuff they get up to, I don't know. Um, but I just, just an interesting side note. I just posted a video on, on our YouTube channel. It's on Facebook. It'll be on our website soon. Of I was actually at the Giza Plateau on December the twenty first, twenty twelve. Wow! Uh, at eleven eleven a.m. when the actual weirdly, I know it's a weird 
sort of cosmic time everyone talks about. That's actually when the solstice was. It was actually 11, 11. And exactly at that time, I, fo- I filmed an orb moving across the Giza Plateau. Oh, my God. And I had some friends photograph it from different angles. Um, and it's very strange. And I've just, uh, for two years, I've hesitated about putting the video up. Are you concerned it'll derail the work that's no, I think, I, done? I think, or I think, you just I, don't want to go there? No, I just thought it was a bit, I didn't know what it was. So I didn't, but I just thought, thought I'd just add that. I just posted that up and I'm just looking for people's opinions on it. So what did you call that video? Oh, just strange, uh, strange light orbs on the Giza plateau or something like that, a Giza. I'm dying to see it now. Yeah, and I uh, want all the It's Rainmaking Time listeners to tune into that. Check it out. Yeah, Write uh, what you think. Yeah, well, we can stick it on your website or something. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. No, but I'm just interested in. Uh, I'm interested in that side of things because this light phenomena does happen at sites, and I think many of these sites are built upon seismic areas uh, where there's fault lines and things like this, and you do get natural earth lights where you get underground stone rubbing against each other. You know the piezoelectric effect, and you get these orbs appearing above the ground. But this one moved along, and this is very similar to the ones you see around crop circles that have been filmed around crop circles so that fascinates me because there's almost like an intelligence behind them so that interests me i don't know i don't think it's aliens or anything like that but it's a phenomenon that's ignored and i think you know light phenomena at sites is a very important thing and you just mentioned the geezer so that's why i mentioned that yeah hugh newman it's a great pleasure and honor to meet you and have a chance to talk with you i know you're very busy and thank you for reconnecting us to the earth and our ancestors and for the work that you're doing and we look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's rainmaking time. It's rainmaking time. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. That's cool. Pleasure.